Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favourite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish-tech-news. This week on The Futurists, Alex Tapscott. And then we get the band back together. You know, imagine being a kid in London and going on a school excursion down to Monument Station. You put your VR goggles on. Okay, class, put your VR goggles on. Let's see what it was like in 1666. And suddenly the London fire is on all around you, right? Like the impact of that event from a historical purpose would be entirely different. Well, guys, thanks for joining us. Um, later in the show, I, we do have Rob Tursek and Miss Metaverse joining us. We're going to chat about a little bit more about Web3. But before that, we had the opportunity uh, a little bit earlier to record a show with Alex Tapscott um, over the launch of his new book, which is called Web3. So here's the interview I did earlier uh, with Alex Tapscott on his new book. I'm your host, Brett King, and uh, this week we have uh, a returning guest, um, and it's exciting because he's got his brand new book out, so we get the opportunity to dive into that. He is the co-author and international best-selling author of uh, Blockchain Revolution, been on the show before, a good friend of the show. He's launching his new book, Web3, charting the internet's next economic and cultural frontier. Alex Tapscott, welcome. Brett, it's a pleasure to be back. And so how have you been, my friend? You know, we haven't caught up since the pandemic. How are things? Well, things have been good. Fortunately, those were some slow years. So not a lot was happening in the world of, you know, Web3 or the world in general. So yeah, not a lot happened. Um, (laughs) In actuality, it's been been a crazy four years. Uh, You know, probably since we last spoke, I had two kids, uh, moved into a new house and wrote a new book. Um, So big changes happening underway in my world, for sure. You got to keep that content coming, you know? Whether it's uh, DNA based or uh, paper based, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. So, um, you know, where are you based these days? Uh, yeah, so I'm based in Toronto, Canada. Uh, but as you well know, as someone who does a lot of uh, speaking gigs, I, I travel around the world. You know, since the yeah. first book came out in 2016, I've traveled to, I think, 40 countries. Um, every continent except Antarctica. Mm. And um, that's been interesting for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, it kind of puts your your home country in perspective, but also gave me a better appreciation for how globally distributed uh, innovation around Web3 has been and and where certain areas are being, uh, you know, leaders or, or where the vanguard is happening. And, and it's happening in some surprising and sometimes unexpected kinds of places like Thailand or right. Turkey. Yes, Nigeria, or some of these other countries, um, and that's really opened my my uh, my eyes more to just how global uh, this all is. Yeah, I think we might be having BitCub on the um, show in a couple of weeks, um, oh, right and the and the the head of Binance in Thailand as well. So um, we're trying to organize that through the FinTech Association. So watch out for that one coming up soon. Um, You know, uh, sort of getting at that actually before we dive into some of the themes in the book. Who, you know, who do you think are the geographical leaders in blockchain specifically? Yeah. Because I mean, I've got my idea. 
It's I've an interesting question, thoughts. and it's one that everyone's asking. You know, wh where's the next Silicon Valley going to be, or where's the future Web three hub? And in many ways, I think the next Silicon Valley won't be a place. It's not going to be one single geographical location. Uh, Silicon Valley was once called a tech Galapagos because of the you know unique blend of characteristics, talent, capital, universities, government R&D, big tech companies, and so forth, that uh, that led to the unique species of, uh, of technology companies that kind of dominated the first era of the internet. And this time, I just think it's different. We're in a different era. Um, you know, in the 90s, as the first you know, economic frontier of the web was being forged. Like most of the internet connections were in the States. Half the world hadn't made a phone call. The economies of all these countries was far, were far less developed than they are today. And now we live in a world where, you know, three quarters of the population has a smartphone connected to the internet and technology and talent and capital is way more distributed than ever. So where is this all going to happen? Well, I think the U.S. is going to remain a leader despite all of these, you know, forecasts. Despite that, the uh, best efforts of the SEC to destroy the, well, the industry. Well, but despite all the, the bearish forecasts and in spite of uh, the, the SEC, um, what's so interesting about the U.S. is that, you know, Web3 can succeed in the U.S. in spite of government uh, policy, not because of government policy. But in other parts of the world, it's the opposite. Where if you're in, you know, the UAE, for example, you need to try and create the conditions for that industry to succeed. And you need to lure people to come there to set up businesses, to invest capital and so forth, because absent those incentives, those people may not choose that as their first vocation. Whereas people might choose to stay in Miami or San Francisco, even with an a highly uncertain regulatory environment for so many reasons, many of them business, but others cultural and, and social and so forth. Um, and then there are sort of middle countries, um, countries like the United Kingdom, for example, or Canada or Singapore, where we're seeing different kinds of approaches. You know, Rishi Sunak, the, uh, the prime minister in the UK, said uh, when Andreessen Horowitz set up shop in London that he wanted to make the UK one of the web three capitals of the world. And I think probably that's sort of where we end up, not with one single place leading the way, but with different nodes uh, doing different things. So the US will remain the the biggest. Like I, I, I know people try to zag on that, but I just can't imagine a world where that's not the case. Yeah. But then I also see um, there's a lot more interest out of East Asia. And I think that hubs around like places like Singapore, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Seoul are going to be um, leaders in this respect. And then there's the question of, are we talking about leadership in terms of company formation or, you know, company or, or network right. formation, investment, and so forth? And then are we talking about usership? And when it comes to usership, that's going to be far more distributed and far less spiky. Like, I don't think it's going to be concentrated in any single location. Chainalysis does really good work on this. And they point out that a lot of countries where adoption of uh, stable coins or uh, Web3 gaming is highest is in places you may not expect initially, mm -hmm. right? You may expect places, you know, developed Western countries, quote unquote, to be where people are adopting these tools. But in fact, it's the opposite. And a lot I'm, of that, I'm surprised. I'm surprised you haven't said China yet or Dubai. Well, <laughs> well Dubai is a fairly well, obvious Well, I did. One, I but, said the UAE. So oh, UAE. Like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did so say Dubai, that. Sorry, my apologies. Dubai, no, I would include Dubai in that group of com com countries that is making an aggressive, uh, aggressively trying to lure uh, companies and talent and capital so that yeah. they can sort of like 
like brute force their way into becoming a leader. Yes, yes. That's very much Dubai's way of things. Yeah. The Chinese thing is is much more complex. Um, I, I think that it's clear that as a country, you know, look, they've got, they've had tailwinds for 40 years and now they have headwinds, right? There's demographic headwinds. The economy is slowing down. They haven't gone like a middle income country yet. Oh, we can get into this debate, brother. This (laughs) is a debate I'm having online right now. And I'm actually having it with my co-host for the futurist, Rob, Rob Tursek. Um, because, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm, I I have a slightly different view on the economy of of China, and we 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 should get into that offline. But um, you know, I I mean, the the reason I said China is we just saw Shanghai announce that they're launching a digital asset register for Shanghai built on the blockchain. All of the you know the biggest banks in China all have blockchain integrated cores now. Yeah. Um, WeBank, which is the biggest digital bank in the world, you know, has uh, has a blockchain core. Um, and I don't know of any other um, sort of, you know, market level infrastructure that runs on blockchain like that, that does in China. So, you know, I just think, I think operationalizing of blockchain, I think they've done very well. Obviously, when we start talking about other aspects of the Web3 world, you know, metaverse, NFTs, DAOs and so forth, yeah. that gets a lot murkier because of the whole CBDC, stablecoin, you know, token issues in China, but which I, uh, you know, I, I get. But op- just pure blockchain, um, you know, I think they've done some already some interesting things. Without a doubt. And I think that's an important distinction. It's uh, the yeah. old expression, right? Capitalism with Chinese characteristics. That's how they like to describe their like a, a, there's a market economy, but there's a strong state and, you know, single party and that kind of controls everything. So it's a different system. And I think in a way we're looking at blockchain with, with Chinese characteristics as well, or, or Web3 with Chinese characteristics. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the benefits, men, one of the many benefits of this um, technology is it gives you a way to move and store value peer to peer and to do so, you know, permissionlessly uh, cross border. Um, between individuals big and small at relatively low cost. And a lot of those things would be attractive um, in, to, to the Chinese government and to the corporate establishment, but some of those things may not be, right? And so I think they're looking at ways to take some of the benefits, real-time settlement, immutable records, smart contracts that can automate business processes, all that kind of technology stuff, and um, uh, develop it in a way that suits the needs of the state. And you could say the same thing maybe for other countries um, who also are looking to, you know, regulate this technology in a way that suits their needs. And that's fine too. But I think the Chinese example is is definitely unique in that respect. Mm. Now, now in terms of like where the country is today and why it might be pivoting, um, well, you know, if if the U.S. is closing the door on something, China may want to open a window and uh, try and you know become a center for innovation in a technology arena that is going to be, in my opinion, one of the um, you know key disruptors for the next sort of twenty years. Well, not only does China have to um, court foreign direct investment, which has done quite well, it has more foreign direct investment than the U.S. today, um, but um, it has to solve the democrat demographic crash right i mean the us will have to solve that in the 2040s as well um but you know china ha- you know has to deal with the fact that they've long ha- been very skeptical of immigration from for, yeah. from cultural for, from a cultural perspective mainly yeah um, like the us could solve that problem with a snap of the fingers if if there was yeah. a political will it's like canada you know where i live our natural growth rate's been below replacement for 
30 years. Right. We, but we uh, Canada has a year. huge immigration program. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what's maintained Canada's economy for so long. It's, uh, you know, it's also, despite um, the fact that in Australia, we, you know, we have very much the same sort of conversation about immigration as Americans do. Um, Australia would be half the size it is today without immigration. So, um, you know, and that has a clear economic impact. So mm-hmm. anyway, let's jump in, into some of the book. Um, yeah. it, you know, we, we're talking about Web3 today, but of course, with you know, Web3 and, and the technologies involved in this are building blocks of the smart world. You know, um, I talk about a, the concept of smart economies, right? Autono- highly autonomous economies, you know, in the 2040s and 2050s. And to do that, we need these technologies. We need stable coins, CBDCs, uh, cryptocurrencies. We need a way to digitize assets. So, you know, early examples of that with NFTs and tokens and so forth. Um, you know, we, we need portable identity systems, you know, that are, um, um, that are immutable and secure. Um, but probably the biggest development we're going to see, um, you know, Harvard's been writing about this uh, recently, um, is the emergence of autonomous corporations, right? And we are seeing the early examples of that today with uh, DAOs. Um, the, despite the fact that the first DAO on the Ethereum um, network was a bit of a disaster, um, this is clearly the way we're going. But what can you tell us about how you think that sort of this autonomous organization um, or componentized organizations might develop around this sort of autonomous technology? Well, first off, I love that framing that you just provide of what the the world might look like in in 2040. Yeah, we have to imagine an environment where there are billions of of people, companies, autonomous AI agents, um, smart devices, and new kinds of organizations, as you're describing them, all needing to, you know, transact, to establish trust, to build wealth, to or- organize capability peer to peer. And that's not going to happen with the existing financial infrastructure or even right. with existing technology platforms. We need a new operating system, which includes, I think, all those things that you just mentioned. So totally in agreement with you there. DAOs are a fascinating part of this whole story. So, you know, for your listeners, DAOs is distributed autonomous organization or decentralized autonomous organization, depending on on how you ask. And basically, they are, they are in, um, I would say, digitally native organizations comprised of token holders, all working towards some kind of collective action or some sort of end goal. So DAOs can be the organizing structure for new kinds of software applications. So in DeFi, for example, a lot of projects um, basically incentivize usership through uh, tokens. So the earlier you are to something, the more you contribute, the bigger a share of the application or platform you can own. And as a result, instead of a cap table with shareholders, you have uh, token holders who have both ownership and governance rights. And there are lots of advantages to that. If you're building a, a software project from scratch and it's meant to live on the internet, and it's meant to be you know, permissionless, allow anyone to access it regardless of where they are, then the ownership structure that you put in place needs to be similarly global in nature. So Silicon Valley has known for a long time that in order to attract the best people or attract people at all, you need to provide 
incentives, ownership incentives. Right. That's why um, you know there's always been this sort of cliche of very generous stock options being paid to early employees. So DAOs kind of start with the same premise, where if you're early to uh, using an application, the more people that join, the more useful that application becomes. You've helped to build the network effects. You've helped to create something more useful, and you should own a piece of it. So in DeFi, something like a decentralized exchange, if you're providing liquidity, the more the more liquidity there is in assets on an exchange, the more useful that exchange is. So it doesn't matter that you know an exchange has 500 things you can buy. If there's no volume in those things, then it doesn't really matter, right? Um, so that's one example. And the difference, though, with DAOs is that they can do it globally. So if you wanted to incentivize users all around the world using conventional method, like, say, I don't know, like a restricted stock unit or a stock option, you would have to create legal agreements in 50 different countries, um, you know, translate contracts into a dozen different languages, all to just create the incentive for people to earn a share of something over time. And with a DAO and with a token rather than equity, you can do that much more simplistically. Now, that's the promise of, of DAOs from an ownership perspective. The other um, thing that's really interesting is governance. So uh, if uh, internet users are going to become internet owners, owners of the applications and, and services that they use, then they may have some say in how that thing is run. And that's an area of uh, DAOs that right now is showing revealing and I think some of the problems with self-governance um, with or with governance in general, which is that you know you may have a bunch of token holders, but many of them don't vote, they don't participate. And as a result, small cabals of people are able to you know shape the direction of organizations, which I should add is quite similar to how it works in uh, corporate um, like proxy voting. You know, right. oftentimes there's very few participating shareholders in a lot of important votes, and it's oftentimes big institutional shareholders that sway the direction of those kinds. So of this things. is this is all managed. Um, you know, you talk a lot about the consensus elements here, but the reality is that um, once those contracts between the different parties are put in place, essentially this business is run by an algorithm or this component of the business is run by an algorithm. Is that a, an accurate assessment? I would say like the, the business processes, part of right. the of what it does are run by algorithms, smart contracts, um, but the governance is done in a very human way um, where, you know, it may be that tokens help allow you to vote on matters, but it's still people and like people talk to people. So, you know, you can find out who the other token holders are and they can you know, agree to to make a, to vote in a certain way. So this is- So consensus, consensus sets policy. Yeah. which defines process, which is coded, encoded, right? That's right, yeah. And the measurement or the performance of of that policy, you know, at the, in, in, in sense of the operation is is in terms of tokens. Um, yeah, that's correct. And I just think that, um, it, like, the thing I'm describing right now is not a reason why DAOs are a bad idea. It's just an implementation challenge, which is the idea of um, incentivizing users of an application through ownership and making sure that everyone who's contributing value has a piece of the upside is a very important and very um, powerful part of the Web3 thesis. Um, but the practice of ensuring good governance is something that has a human element. And that human Well, element. you know, we are going to have to get better at figuring out um, you know, particularly as more and more of our business is running code, yeah. you know, is automated, we're going to have to figure out how to govern, you know, that sort of black box function, you know, particularly if there's elements of generative 
you know, generative elements of AI, where it starts off doing, you know, or um, doing approaches to execute on the core mission of the contract, but not according to the process we may have defined at the start, because it thinks it can do it a more efficient way, or just finds, it doesn't think, but it finds more efficient patterns in terms of how to do trades or whatever it might be. I think it's interesting. I do think that, um, uh, you know, I think what the Web3 community probably undersells is the fact that every corporation in the 2050s, every leading corporation in the 2050s is going to be highly autonomous, right? Or have highly autonomous elements to it. So we have to look at this as, you know, if people are dismissive of the Dow, then they have to be dismissive of that future as well, which isn't reasonable. So even if you don't agree with the Dow, you have to see it as an experimentation in the stepping stone to the way we have to think about corporations in the future and regulations about governing corporations that are highly autonomous. We don't have laws in place that defines a corporation without office holders, for example, but we may not have a CFO function, you know, in, you know, we will for now, but, you know, in 30 years, we may not need a CFO function in terms of oversight or fiduciary duty of the, the, uh, the the algorithmic entity I, it just yeah. it's very interesting right well you can explore i mean you can tease that out a little bit further so if um more and more organizations are like DAOs, and more of their transactions are happening on chain or all their transactions are happening on chain then you've created an immutable transparent record of their finances and so you don't need a cfo or or at least you don't need um accountants to you know, prove that transactions occur right. because you have an immutable record that everyone can see and trust. Well, you can also have another algorithm that audits it. Yeah. Right? That's, well, you I mean, of course, so, and this is the, the intersection of AI and Web3, right? Which is that, you know, you have this process, this economic- uh, Now we're getting yeah. into it. This yeah. this uh, this is this way to um, manage transactions and contracts and to build trust. And then you have this intelligence engine on top of it that can take that and interpret it and build, you know, like value-added services using that, right? Yeah. And I think that's 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 where we also see the intersection of of AI and Web three. You know, I, I just want to say one thing before we move on, which is that um, you know I think right now all of these technologies people are viewing as distinct technologies, whether it's AI or IoT or VR and AR or blockchain and and so far. But I think uh, you know in much the same way as the term internet expanded from its original kind of definition to describe our whole era that includes many technologies, right. business models, social behaviors, et cetera. Uh, this term Web3, I think, is is evolving to describe an era that is composed of a group of different technologies. Now, I'm not trying to slide AI into um, the... Dis- into no, no, but I think, you know, a lot of what we're doing... Very important. Yeah, a lot of what we're doing, particularly when we start talking about digital assets and decentralized finance, you know, and 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 the blockchain, is we are trying to create a structure that's machine readable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the digital twin concept and so forth. This is so the the world of AI can recognize, you know, the the utility and the you know products and services and and you know elements that we have in in society so it can work with them so it's all in my view you can't talk about web3 without talking about artificial intelligence you know and you yeah. can't talk about how ai is going to be integrated into society without talking about web3 i think they're as as you say they're quite complementary yeah. Now, I do want to get into the book, dude, um, because, you know, I mean, that's why we brought you on this week. You've got the the book out. But yeah. um, 
So uh, I, I, I want to talk about identity uh, in a moment, but first of all, um, obviously the book is called Web3. It's uh, it's just come out this week. Um, it's it's I'm sure I haven't checked today, but I'm sure it's on the the bestsellers ranking uh, already. Um, but uh, I you know talk about the journey for you in terms of the timing of this because you could have talked about Web three five years ago, mm. um, but um, you know why why is now the right timing for a book like this? Is it because it's just is critical mass or yeah, well, it's a it's a great question. Um, I've been thinking about the the idea for some time. You know, the term Web three is not new. It was coined in two thousand and fourteen. But there's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. And I thought that in two thousand and twenty one, twenty two, while all this innovation was happening, there was a lot of uh, confusion about what Web three was and what it wasn't. And I actually think that the events of last year, like the collapse of FTX and Terra Luna and some of these other high profile projects, um, had sort of thrown new mud on the windshield and clouded people's views even further and sort of hastened my sense of urgency to actually get out and write this book. So my objective with the book really is to reset the conversation about Web3, to help people understand some of the enduring sort of themes and concepts uh, around this technology and why it's important. The we, we <laughs> You mentioned we're hopping into the book. We've kind of been t- talking around a lot of the themes. Well, the we've been talking about the, book, the theme of the book um, for sure, yeah. It, and and we've talked we've touched on a couple we've t- talked about assets and organizations so the way that the uh, the book is kind of structured is that uh, we look at you know web3 what it is how it works and so forth and then we look at the key transformations what does this mean for assets what does this mean for people uh, internet users how what it means to be a person online how it impacts organizations what it means for different industries including financial services but also gaming infrastructure etc um how this is going to intersect with other technologies like AI and the metaverse, and then what this means for civilization. And then we look at the path forward and give some key takeaways. So each one of those transformations, assets, people, organizations, industries, basically you can think of as bigger and bigger concentric circles. I think the asset is the most important part of this, or it's the foundational primitive or building block of of Web3, the idea that we have a way to express ownership of a digital good uh, online, and we have a way to move and store it and, and use it and manipulate it, to me, is the big sort of kernel, the big starting point. But what this means for people, I think is equally profound. So in web two, we entered into this Faustian bargain unwittingly. I don't think people consciously did this, but basically the trade was you would give access to your information and data and time and so forth to these big platforms. And in exchange, you would be provided with a free service like search or social networking or so and so forth. And initially this seemed like a good trade because the, these platforms in the early days were, were fun and they were novel and they were useful and the data didn't seem all that valuable. But I think what we've realized is that with if someone else is capturing all of our data and using all this information, it means we can't monetize it. It might end up in the wrong hands. So one of the really interesting things- Can you hear that? Web3 is the idea of a self-sovereign identity, the idea that an individual can own their own data and own their own di- digital goods um, and can decide how, how they're used, where they're used, and, and whether they get compensated for it. And I think that each of those different concepts is really important. So the Web2 model is a kind of um, digital feudalism, right? Where you provide all this data in exchange, you get access to something like free services, like some cabbages or something from the Lord. And with this new model, <laughs> We have a, a different one where it's a citizen-centric identity where you own and control all these different aspects of your of you and your life, and you decide how they're used. So there's a relationship here to tokens. You know, it's Vitalik Buterin, who's 
um, you know, the creator of Ethereum has talked a lot about soul-bound tokens. This idea that uh, we could have a non-fungible, non-transferable token that's that's programmed to gather data about us over time, and that becomes something that we can passport from country to country. We can use it to improve how we access government services, healthcare. We can improve how we access financial services through you know, reputation-based credit scoring, all of these different things are part of a rich digital identity that you as a user, you as the individual could get to control. And that more than anything is is a really profound shift in how we think about yeah. our relationship to technology and to the web. That's, uh, well, it's, it's great. I mean, it's always good to get a new book out. I know how tough it is to, um, to write a book. And this is one that's pretty complex and to make the complex simple, it takes a lot of time. You first of all have to have a deep understanding of each of these areas. So, um, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to getting a copy of it this week and uh, checking it out. But for those that are you know joining us here and listening, um, you know, where can they find the book? Yeah, the book is available for wherever books are sold. You know, Amazon, Borders, um, in in the UK. If you have listeners, it's available there. We also have several uh, foreign rights that we've sold already, so it will be available in Korean, Thai, uh, Simplified Chinese, Brazilian, Portuguese so far, and we're expecting a lot more translations. Uh, for those Excellent. who can buy it in North America and the UK, the best way to buy the book is in massive volume. For yourself, your friends, <laughs> yeah, your family, dude, for everyone. <laughs> New York Times, here we come. No, it's here tough, man. It's tough. You know, I mean, I've tried a couple of times. I've got close, but about 18,000, you know, these New days. Times, but anyway. New York Times is the holy grail. But you know what? You don't have to be a yeah. New York Times bestseller to have a, a book that. No, uh, but, you know, you're going to get on the Times, top of the yeah. Amazon list and stuff as, as well. So, but listen to this. Uh, this is a quote from the back page of the book. And I'm I'm envious because I tried to get this. I tried to get this for techno socialism. My last one. This is the quote: With Web three, Tapscott has captured the zeitgeist. We are on the brink of an extraordinary new era where technology can reimagine everything. With clarity of thought and deep insight, this book explores Web 3's immense potential. Guess who wrote that? Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple. What a what a uh, a fantastic testimonial, dude! Yeah, thank you. I was yeah, it's a good get. Surprised by yeah, that. no, that's awesome. Because yeah. you know, my agent knows his agent. We tried to get him, and he was just at the time. I think he was sick or whatever. But I'll make that excuse. But yeah, um, well, well done. Um, check it out. Uh, Web three charting the internet's next next economic and cultural frontier. Alex, how can people get in touch with you if they want to know uh, more about what you're doing? Yeah, please connect with me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Follow me on Twitter and connect on LinkedIn. So um, at Alex Tapscott on Twitter and then just Alex Tapscott, I think I'm on LinkedIn. Pretty yeah. responsive. So uh, please get in touch and uh, yeah, check out the book. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, that was uh, that was fun. That was uh, it was good to see. Um, you know, Alex is obviously still a believer in the Web3 stuff and the blockchain stuff. So let's take a quick break. After the break, there's going to be more more Web3 goodness when Rob Tersek and Miss Metaverse and I get together. We'll be right back after this break. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, 
Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Hey there, welcome back. You're listening to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, and, and we're now we're joined by Miss Metaverse, Katie, the king of the metaverse. And of course, Brett. Hi, Brett. Yeah. Chiming in a little bit late here, but thanks for bringing us that segment from Alex Tapska. Good no to see the the Tapscat clan is still cranking out the books about blockchain. They have oh, a minor indeed. industry of making those books. Um, right yeah. on, though, it's cool to see that there's still signs of life in the Web3 area. I'm a fan. I'd like to see it gather even All more. All just in Dubai. And, and, you know, it's still, um, you know, they just had the World Blockchain Summit there. And uh, yeah, there was tons of people in town. Brock Pierce was there. Who's the guy that runs London Real, Katie? Oh, Brian Rose. Yeah, Brian Rose was there. What? I mean, it was. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, there was a bunch of futurists in town. I mean, they had Jitex on as well. But blockchain is still, you know, especially in the Dubai um, ecosystem, is still got, um, you know, getting a lot of attention. And uh, even things like NFTs here in Los Angeles, there's an NFT community that's still alive and kicking. It's mostly artists, I should say. But I, I actually kind of like that. Uh, you know, the crypto crowd is not really my crowd. Uh, the money people, right, I'm right. more interested in creative people. And um, they're less interested in, you know, making a ton of cash or cashing in on a boom. What they're interested in is bringing creativity into this idea and the concept of uh, ownership and even decentralized ownership or distributed ownership of art assets is an interesting space. Like that's a creative space. You're no, seeing this I, sort of injection. This is funny because, you know, you're talking mm -hmm. about Web3, i.e. the metaverse. And I was talking about mm -hmm. Web3, i.e. the blockchain. But actually, they're yeah. two slightly different definitions, definitions of Web3, right? Because yeah. in, when we talk about metaverse, we're talking about the 3D web, right? But when we talk about blockchain, we're talking about version three of the internet. That's how they classify mm -hmm. Web3. It took me a while to get my head around this, actually, because they're both yeah. talking about Web3. But the blockchain crowd see Web3 definition very differently, which is the decentralized internet, which leads right. to all these other things like decentralized currency and so forth. So I know that's, and I mean, many people story. listening will already know that, but I think it was important to make that distinction when we talk about Web3, right? That's right. And and those are important concepts because let's let's face it, right now, the web that we have is not just highly centralized, it's terrible. I mean, candidly, when's the last time you had a great experience using Google search or searching for anything on Amazon? Uh, these these dominating platforms have become cluttered with so much crap. They're over monetizing us, they're tracking us, they're force feeding yeah. us stuff we don't necessarily want. Uh, you know, there's a, a book out by Cory Doctorow now where he talks about the enshittification of the web. And his message is really very simple, but it's actually a good point, which is that the platforms always begin by attracting right. users and they borrow money from the capital markets because they have access so they can scale that up. They get a lot of users. Then they turn around and they change the system so that it favors uh, the, the the suppliers or the people who are selling stuff, which could be marketers or in the case of Amazon merchants. Um, and then they give a favorable treatment to them until they're locked in. And once they've got both sides locked in, then they start to over monetize and spam the heck out of us with unwanted ads and other clutter. And so he calls that process in shitification. He points out that it's happened to search. It's happened to social media. It's right. happened to online shopping. It's even happening to TikTok at this point. I think he makes a good point. This is the we consequence of these huge yeah. platforms. Uh, so can we break free? Well, that's the hope. That's the promise of Web3, uh, the decentralized web. And candidly, I'm a fan. Like, I like that idea just because I find it exhausting yeah, yeah. to deal with all 
all the clutter in the regular, uh, the the big centralized sites. Right, right, right. And also too, I mean, you have people, sorry, go, go, you yeah. know, worried about even people worried about engaging with AIs, you know, like a uh, chat JBT, you know, there's people who are really upset because, you know, the earlier versions had better quality results, you know, and uh, as things get messed with, you know, for, for various reasons, you know, you get different versions, you have no control over that, you know, whereas back in the day, you had one version of software, maybe every year, and, you know, you could hold on to it. But obviously, that is a long time thing in the past. <laughs> Even in the AI space, you're quite right. Look, there was a frenzy of innovation just six months ago. But now we're starting to see it solidify around this, the same big companies. So yeah. AWS has launched a very ambitious project, uh, which is to attract companies, you know, enterprises, to their cloud service using AI. And they've got a variety of different foundation models that you can plug in. So that makes it very convenient and easy. But it starts to look an awful lot like a roach motel, which is easy to check into and hard to check <laughs> out of. What they'd like to try to do is get you to put your whole business on the cloud, uh, start to integrate those AI tools. And once you yes. migrated your whole business yeah. process over, it'd be really hard to switch out. Now, Microsoft's doing the same thing with Azure and Google's doing the same thing with Google Cloud. Uh, so this starts to look like, you know, the, the kind of uh, rat trap or roach motel of the web. One more attempt by these big companies to centralize and to get companies, uh, partners hooked on their platform. So that's a, that's the bait and switch. We're seeing that one more time. I mean, I think the whole world's caught on to this technique now and we're kind of exhausted. The wild card with AI, though, is the open source models, of which there's now thousands. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, they're yeah. Improving no, you quickly. can spin up your own LLM today in the garage, you know, or in, on, in the on your iPhone. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Right. So, yeah, yeah. So that's a space for some great creativity. But, you know, in a way, that's an illustration of the point we're just making, which is the innovation happens in a decentralized way, at least the, the innovation that favors users. Uh, so there's been some news. You know, actually, we've had a, quite a lot of discussion around this, Brett. A second ago, you were talking about how this dovetails with the metaverse. Of course, that's a topic we've had a number of different people come on the show to talk mm -hmm. about. And um, uh, and there's been some news. You know, Tony Parisi was on our show earlier. Uh, oh, yeah. He was How's at he doing? A, a Lamina One. He's, uh, Lamina yeah. One's doing great. He's, he's moved on to something else at this point. But I just saw news today that Neil Stevenson, the guy who coined the term back in 1993, yeah, yeah. Uh, they have now launched uh, Lamina One as a decentralized ecosystem for building interoperable metaverses. So the principle wow. here is actually quite it's the good. oasis. <laughs> yeah, the idea is you're not. It's not like the metaverse will be one company building a kind of 3D Disneyland that you go to as a destination. That was kind of the Facebook right, right, right. idea. Even yeah. Facebook back in the day when they were when they were pushing this idea, even they said there will be many different metaverses. Well, that's what Lambda One is seeking to build. Uh, they built a decentralized ecosystem for building metaverses. Anyone can build one. It's totally open. They already have 50,000 beta users developing on a platform. And uh, they've got systems for decentralized identity, uh, asset, uh, decentralized asset storage and asset exchange, uh, tools like game engines to help you build 3D worlds. And the whole thing's built on top of the Avalanche blockchain, uh, which is a very fast blockchain. That's always been an right. issue in the past. Right. Yeah, Transactions yeah. through yeah. Uh, so there's some news from one of our previous guests. Uh, and next week, I'm going to be seeing Wolf Kahl. You might remember early in our show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was one of the first people we interviewed. Uh, Wolf is an expert in decentralized governance. And yeah, yeah. governance. Yes, yeah, so we talked about DAOs way back in, I think it was like episode number four of our show. Well, I'll be visiting with him and the Minnesota Blockchain Association on Monday. Uh, what we're going to talk about is Sounds endemic like a corruption. team. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not the Timberwolves, the blockchain. The Minnesota blockchains. Yeah, sorry. 
<laughs> so we're going to talk about endemic corruption. The world, uh, the the world that we're in right now, and, and particularly in the United States, uh, you know, we have it's not just big tech companies. Big companies dominate just about every category. About seventy five percent of the U.S. economy is dominated by a handful of companies, three or four big firms. So if you think of it, like we have only four major airlines. Um, we only have uh, a couple choices in operating systems for mobile phones. We have a couple of mobile operators. You have usually one choice of broadband provider and so on. And we see this across the board. It's not just uh, telecommunications and, um, it, and transport. It's also true in food. Uh, most of the food that we buy is produced by about 10 companies in the U.S. So this concentration called an oligopoly or cartelization of the US economy. In a weird way, that's like a centralization, very similar to the kind of centralization we see on the web. Uh, so on Monday, we'll be talking a little bit about that with the blockchain group, like how can we decentralize the existing economy? Nice challenge. Absolutely. Well, yeah, there's a lot happening in the space. Um, you know, there's talk of new ETFs in the Bitcoin space, you know, the, you know, you know people like Gemini have been trying to do that for a long time. So if we can finally get so many an ETF through the SEC. That'll be big news, considering how um, uh, how harsh the SEC has been towards crypto in recent times. Yeah. You know, um, like uh, you yeah. know, I, a, a lot. Like I don't know whether you guys saw the news that last week Binance dropped carrying US dollars. You know, um, oh. in their um, their uh, ecosystem because you know there's it's just too much trouble with the SEC. So it's pretty crazy that, you know, um, it's been that combative um, given, you know, the amount of wealth that it's created in the US, you know, the the whole crypto yeah. community, right? So, well, and also but, you know, it's, the, it's new world right. versus old stuff, right? Yeah, and, and, the, and the promise of innovation, right? Our, our regulatory yeah. agencies aren't supposed to get in the way of regulation. And it looks like the SEC is putting itself firmly in the path of progress. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's no doubt we need regulation. There's no doubt, you know, there's been enough scandals and enough scams, particularly in crypto. SBF. Uh, yeah. Where they seem, yeah, they seem to crank out a scam every week or so. Sure, yeah, we can talk about Sam Bankman fried um, <laughs> you know, that... Unfortunately, because sorry, it's about it, money. That Sam bankrupt fraud? I, sorry. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> bankrupt fraud. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Actually, you know, bringing up the FCC, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, too, because it, it seems that they're really trying to move along the metaverse in terms of devices. Uh, I believe just uh, recently, uh, they just, uh, the FCC gave the U.S. green light to use speedier 6 gigahertz frequency for uh, low power wearables. Uh, VR and AR devices. So hopefully uh, this oh. will be meaning that- So a specific a spectrum. Of, yes, yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, uh, you know, obviously there's some big plans coming in. And I think uh, with all the hype about Metaverse 2.0, we should be seeing more soon. So it's yeah. exciting stuff. Good. Well, it's important to make sure, make sure those devices can operate fast. Uh, um, you know, the the um, particularly for augmented reality, you need those overlays to line up exactly precisely yeah. on point. If you turn your head or something, if there's a little bit of a lag, not only does it no wreck lag. the illusion, uh, yeah. it actually can make you seasick. You know, you kind of get nauseous if it happens. Uh, so low latency is going to be extremely important for those wearable devices. And there've been quite a few, you know, like um, there's a new, a new Ray-Ban Facebook collaboration. Yeah, the meta glasses. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. Uh, I was just going to cool. talk about that, actually. Have you got, a, pretty cool. got a pair yet, Rob? No, I haven't. We have to get. I one. haven't. I'm waiting for the Vision Pro, man. That's yeah, gonna be my yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But don't call it AR. Call it spatial computing because the jargon right. has moved on. 
We don't yeah. talk about the metaverse anymore. Well, the first we time I heard that media. term was from um, uh, Scoble, actually. You know, which it mm-hmm. makes sense, right? He's the guy in that space. But um, like, remember that book he did with Shell Israel years ago on spatial yeah. computing? Yeah. You know, so exactly. uh, yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm convinced that this is a thing. You know, I know there's a ton of hype and it always seems like a perpetual dawn. We hear about these technologies that haven't quite arrived. They haven't quite matured, uh, but progress is being made. I think for the folks who are listening, who are skeptical, who have heard this story before, remember that hardware is hard. And moving an entire gigantic ecosystem like the web to something new is a big undertaking, particularly when you're doing it in the face of the most powerful and rich companies on the planet. They do not welcome this. So you're running in the resistance there. And then add to it things like, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission setting up roadblocks, uh, making it difficult for companies to progress. All those things together make it a very tough uphill slog, which is one of the reasons why Web3 is taking a bit longer than people had hoped. But... We do have precedents for, you know, these types of step change technologies taking quite a while to break through. I mean, we've got Google Glass was the early prototypes and stuff. So you can even go back to that. But I was thinking, um, you know, this week I was talking about, um, you know, autonomous vehicles. And a few years ago, we used to say, oh, we'll have self-driving cars before we'll have flying cars. But actually, we now have these flying vehicles that are starting to operate around the world based on basic drone technology, you know? Um, and they're not exactly what we thought of as a flying car back in the day. Um, but, you know, we, we, we're seeing rapid progress in that area now. But it took a long time for that technology to actually find the right tech to make it viable. And there's a little bit of that with the metaverse in that, um, you know, the quality of the glasses and the ability to um, not just create virtual worlds that you can disappear into, but that we see these computing devices as everyday devices that's going to be the game yeah. changer. So that's really that the wearable smart glasses, augmented reality stuff that does the real-time translation, does real-time image recognition, you know, that you can project a screen, you know, but that that's wearable. Now, Vision Pro is getting closer to that, but, you know, yeah. you're not going to wear Vision Pro around on the street, right? You know, we need a few generations of that technology to get to really mass market where then I think... Um, you know, just the coolness of a, a device like that will lead to clear adoption. You know, that's that's sort of my view of it. The 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 Vision Pro is a is a pretty significant step forward. I mean, that's a oh that's yeah, a yeah, absolutely, device. yeah. Uh, the and one, and it's going to make it. You know, it's going to get the developers into that, right? And so that's oh, the real that, thing you also need yeah. for success of the metaverse is having those really cool applications on top of that. And it's a, an entirely new programming competency. It's a, an entirely That's new exactly design it. language, right? So we need a ton of developers to continuously um, get get into this space before we get really compelling experiences in that. I mean, if you remember the first iPhone, right, the 2G iPhone, yeah, you had a few apps and stuff on it, but you don't have anywhere near the experiences you have today. Yeah, that's true. Look, that's the hardest developer program in the world to get into, Vision Pro. Everybody I know is yeah. trying to get their foot in the door there. Um, I, I keep seeing my friends posting their credentials. They're like, yeah, I got accepted into that program. Oh, wow. Because people perceive that that's going to be a significant step forward. But, you know, let's give credit to Facebook because, uh, or to Meta, I should, I should say. Mark Zuckerberg has been yeah, seriously committed to this space. And he's put $40 billion to work 
on building out uh, metaverse equipment, not just, you know, the, the infrastructure, but also the hardware. You know, this is it. I mean, they are making progress towards that. You now have smart yeah, glasses that can do real-time translation of language and stuff like that in your field of view. I mean, this is pretty cool tech. Well, acquiring Oculus is really key in all that, you know. I mean, yeah. if Facebook didn't end up taking Oculus, I think it would have been a totally different scenario, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, you know, and a lot of people even use uh, you know, the MetaQuest and all that these days because, you know, they still tie it in with the original Oculus brand rather than Meta itself. And uh, you know, yes. but we'll see what happens. I mean, Horizon Worlds got kind of a bad rap, you know, in the beginning. Uh, but I think more people are slowly adopting more and more and I know uh, even just from my experience, I see more people hopping on and, you know, adding me as a friend on Oculus. And, uh, I mean, meta, uh, you know, so it's, yeah. it's it's showing there's more growth. There's more people out there. It's a good thing. Yeah. And the new glasses go off in a, a, a different direction as well. And I'm sure we're going to see these worlds. Yeah, I yeah. see these worlds sort of come together. You know, I do right. see at some point that, you know, the operating systems we build for the VR world, you know, a lot of that will cross over into AR, the competencies. The only difference really is sort of putting interfaces in into the world in context, you know, when you've got AR versus VR. So the sort of early stuff we've seen, like being able to project a, you know, Minecraft game, you know, 3D world onto a you know tabletop surface with HoloLens and things like that. We see a little bit of that, but, you know, that's really rudimentary stuff compared with what we're going to see with amazing apps integrated into the world around us with AR. Yeah, so okay. heads up just as you walk around yeah. town, you know, you'll see sorts of data overlays. So right now, I think the way to look at this is there's a kind of a foot race between Apple and um, and Meta. Uh, you know, so Apple's going to launch Vision Pro sometime next year. Um, Meta has about a year then to start to really solidify their base before people start to switch out and migrate to Apple. At least that's the fear, right? Apple's price point is super high. When you add it all up with taxes, it's about four thousand dollars. I don't know, that's dude. You know, funny. it's like it's like saying uh, when iOS came out, it killed Android. You know, it's like I, I'm not sure that we're gonna. Ha it's all or nothing, one way or the other. I think you know, just like I think you're gonna get different crowds of people with different preferences potentially. And the two are gonna propel each other forward, right? So yeah. competition yeah, is good. We get better devices. So uh, Meta's going to try to come up in quality step by step. Each step is a, more difficult than the last one. And then Apple will try to step down in terms of price point. And somewhere, you know, eventually they'll be on the same wavelength and we'll have a choice of two. Exciting times ahead. Uh, so there we have it. Web3 intersecting with the metaverse and uh, evolving into something that might be the future of the web. I'm keenly excited to see it. Me too. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Katie, yes. what do you use Oculus for? What do you what do you like it for? Do you use like VR chat? You know, uh, earlier on I did. You know, uh, there was like a lot of like virtual clubs and stuff like that, which I found kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to kind of like watch movies with someone, you know, um, I think it's kind of cool. You yeah, can share yeah. like a, a screen. It's like you have your own virtual movie theater. Uh, and there's also a bunch of other interesting things you could do. Uh, you know, I'd like to see more. There's a lot of games. Uh, people are talking about quite a few games that have just come out recently. Uh, they started to look, look a little bit better. Earlier on, there were more like really short uh, short experiences. Now they're becoming mm -hmm. more of a full-on game, which is uh, exciting. So hopefully we'll see more immersion, uh, more more people socializing and whatnot. 
but it still has some ways to go. But I'd say overall, I, I think we're, we're getting there. We're, we're pretty close. So it's looking up. You have this experience when I when I do a VR thing, I I memorize, I remember it like it, it stays in my memory in a way that watching a movie or looking yeah. at a book or something doesn't stay with me. It's weird. It's almost like a dream where you kind no, of. I, I, well, I used to when I was playing Half Life, you know, on Oculus. Um, you uh, you so very quickly immersed in the environment, and you know, like it, it's it's very different to a game typical gaming experience because you're yeah. uh, you believe you you know your brain partially believes you're in the, that environment, you know, and it's not as natural the movement and so forth. But so when you take the glasses off, it's sort of like you have to readjust to the reality of the room and things like that. I'm not that's running true. through corridors having face huggers chase me, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah. why. The, the Vision Pro is cool because you can dial it down. You can sort of dial down. With, right. You can choose which level of reality you want to, um, you know, you want to be in the real one or the one, the virtual one. Um, you know, it's also why VR training is so effective. We tend to overlook that, but that's the second biggest category for VR after uh, after games, and it makes a good deal of sense, right? If you think about how the way we, tra- we train employees today, almost always it's going to be a series of really bad videos followed by some really poorly laid out clickable screens, right? That's usually how you do employee training. Everyone's done those compliance training things. They're terrible. But if you do employee training in VR, it's almost like a lived experience. Like you really yeah. have it embodied in you and you remember it and you are moving your hands around in a space and you know picking up things and moving them and so forth. It's impossible to forget. It's as impossible to forget as if you yeah. did it yourself. And from the brain's perspective, it's the same, right? So you're interacting with the virtual world feels to the brain just like interacting with the real world. I've, so I've that's got an example. Training. Yeah, I've got an example that I used in Augmented. So this was back in 2015. I said, um, you know, imagine being a kid in London and going on a school excursion down to Monument Station, you know, where the monument is in in, uh, London. You put your VR goggles on. Okay, class, put your VR goggles on. Let's see what it was like in 1666. And suddenly the London fire is on all around you, right? Like the impact of that event from a historical purpose would be entirely different, you know? This really has the potential to change our education significantly, I'm sure. I think so too. Yeah. And like, you know, in a physics class, they could take you inside of a molecule so you can actually see it because the models we have for molecules are terrible. Like the representations we yeah, have yeah. today that we teach with, they're not really accurate. Katie, I stepped on you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. And uh, it's actually funny you mentioned the mo- molecules. Uh, a friend of mine is actually developing a VR educational platform uh, to, to help people, uh, well, to educate both uh, those in the medical field and patients uh, about sickle cell. And actually, you know, uh, show and, and and explore, you know, what exactly happens and, you know, a breakdown of all of that. So there are some really uh, useful ways that people are kind of tapping into VR besides games and whatnot. Um, another thing, too, and, and this ties into uh, the Vision Pro is that, you know, it's a fu- the future of work, right? I mean, uh, w- when yeah, you yeah. put on the headset, you know, you have this experience. I know for me, I, I like to have... Uh, you know, set up the home screen. So it's like you're in kind of like a cyberpunk future apartment and, you know, you're, you're doing your work and, you yeah, know, yeah. if you could be able to sit in there and, and write just for, let's say, six to eight hours or something, why even go to a cafe? You got your coffee at home, you put your VR Well, maybe that's, that's right the, the trick. Maybe that's what I got to do, right? Because, you know, because yeah. Katie's hinting at the fact that I only write in cafes. I, it's, this is true. <laughs> it's like my jam <laughs> for writing, you know? So. Hey, it's Very good to fun. be in real space once in a while. Yeah, true. (laughs) 
Here's one area that I know is growing fast. Uh, during the pandemic, the airlines all laid off a lot of crew and not just the flight attendants, but also the ground crew. So if you've been flying lately, Brett, I know you've been yeah. flying around the world. You experience things like delays and lost luggage a lot more than you did back in 2019. And that's because the crew, the ground crew is often very new. Uh, they've been uh, their new hires. Well, they're finding that with immersive training, if you use a VR headset, you can train people much faster and they retain it much better. And where that's particularly useful is repairing jet engines. Uh, so VR for yeah, the repair yeah, of jet engines, that. I know it's like super narrow and precise, but it affects everybody who flies. So it's actually something where we get the benefit of it. Uh, even yeah, if and those engines get... have like a million components, so super complex. Yeah. That's always the example they use when they talk about industrial metaverse, which is a category I'm super interested in. This is not the entertainment metaverse or the game metaverse, but the more practical reality of you know being able to see everything that's going on in a factory or everything that's going on at, say, a complex place like an airport. These are hard things to visualize because they're three-dimensional. Uh, so an immersive media representation is actually quite a good, uh, it's a good way to indulge in that. Big area for my practice right now. I've been dealing with that um, on the city scale level now uh, in different cities across the, across the U.S. Building out city scale digital. Yeah, you know, the complex smart city design stuff and things like that. You know, there's going to be a whole lot of. I know, you know, it's off the track a bit, but talking to the Neom guys last week while I was in Dubai and so mm. forth. You know, we're really the the big challenge right now is us developing operating systems for smart cities. Right? It's yeah. like. Yeah, because, you know, you have to deal with all of these complexities and there's going to be a ton of automation thrown at it. You know, how do you, mm -hmm. you know, how would you organize uh, transport at the line, for example, you know, um, because so long, would you put a train in? Well, then it'd have to it'd take like hours to get from one end to the other if you had regular station stops and things like that. So some of the design problems are pretty interesting. The line city, you know, it seems like a design nightmare. It's like if you want to get from one end to the other, it's the most difficult thing in the world. You're going to have to be But I think, you know, the, the point of mm. the line, and again, this is where some of this emerging um, design thinking is coming for cities, is that you have these mixed-use or multi-use um, zones and neighborhoods, and you don't need to go out of that zone unless you're, you know, you're traveling. So you would have a express version of a train and then you'd have localized stops and things like that. But the whole idea is you can work, you can go to hospital, you can have your kids go to school all within that uh, mixed use zone, you know? So Was it um, five to 15 minutes to get from one end to the line to the other. Cause I, I think it, it's, it's, yeah, but that's if you don't have any stops, right? Right, right, right. right. The problem <laughs> is quite a long, if you have all those stops that that was the discussion that was going on. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, this is, you know, we, you know, we're starting to have to think about the world in a different way. That's what's really interesting about this. You know, we're having to measure the world, describe the world, you know, the digital twin concept, you know, that's also making us think about how these systems are organized. And AI, one of the beauty of AI is it will be able to handle all of these complex systems like transportation, sanitation design, you know, better resource and energy management than, than we can. But the, the issue with that is going to be we don't understand what the black box is doing necessarily. So there's it's a really interesting time to start thinking about large-scale systems and you know how we represent yeah. data of that, how we can use the the metaverse and Web3 for that. It's, uh, yeah, all, all really interesting stuff. You know, so Brett and Katie, I'm going to have conference on this very topic in uh, Santa Fe, and it's happening on oh, November cool. 10 and 11. It's called Creative Experience, and it's where the digital world meets the real world. And it's all about this idea of large-scale systems thinking and how do we use technologies like AI and immersive media to make a better world. 
the reason we did it is really simple. Most of the folks I talk to are not that excited about artificial intelligence. Generally speaking, the people I talk to, particularly people who aren't in the tech industry, they look at it skeptically. They're like, here's just one more thing the tech industry's thrown at us. And that's not a great way to approach the future. On this show, we're always interested in the future and trying to give people different techniques or ways to think about the future. They're a little more constructive. I think you want to lean into these things. So I organized this event where people can learn about the technologies, people who are not from the tech industry, and then ask the question, how can we use this to make a resilient community better? So that's happening in Santa Fe. It's called CXSF, uh, and it's happening on the, on the 10th and 11th of November. And I'm very excited about this. Small group, highly participatory, with some outstanding speakers. So a lot of future thinking folks will be there on the 10th. Cool. Yeah, I, I am, uh, I've been inspired by you, Brad. I want to start to do more events now that the world is kind of coming back to life uh, post-pandemic. And so uh, the idea of getting together in the real world and not just doing everything by Zoom is on my agenda, too. Well, you know, uh, I can so tell you, dude, you know, my message is sharpening up, you know, like because I'm having to present it and I'm having to handle, um, you know, questions and stuff. And I'm, I'm just like, you know, we've talked about it a lot, you know, like the the and we might even have um, what's his name, Giannis, uh, whatever, with his techno feudalism book out. And, you know, we're talking about these different people are starting to think about different systems, different economic models. You know, I mean. 20 years ago, if you'd suggested that, you know, we're talking about late stage capitalism, it would have been, um, you know, almost heresy, right? But now people are at least starting to entertain this sort of stuff. You know, what sort of systems do we need moving forward? How is AI going to change that? Um, even the question of techno unemployment and things like that, it's getting a bit more acceptance that we are going to change the way we work very rapidly and that's going to result in displacement. So we have to sort of think about that transition, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. Wow. We covered a lot of stuff on the show. Crazy. Uh, how we're pulling it all together. We should do this more often though. This is this sort of, uh, you know, banter and we should get Brian back on too, you know? Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Yeah. Get the band back together. Get the well, band back well, thanks together. for uh, Alex Tapscott. Always good to hear from him. Let's try to get him and uh, his dad on a show in the future. Yes, yes. And Katie, it's always great. Well, great. This is uh, this has been a fun time to see all of you and tie these threads of AI and immersive media and Web three and the decentralized web and blockchain all together. Uh, what a these these appear to be like the building blocks of the future. Um, and and as slow as the progress might be, there are signs of progress. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, this has been a pleasure to have. I'm Rob Tursik. You've had our, um, my co-host, Brett King, and Katie, Miss Metaverse, joining us. Uh, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Big thanks to Kevin Hirshhorn for recording it, Elizabeth Severins, our producer, and the folks at Provoke Media who make the show possible. And of course, a big thanks to our audience, our listeners. Uh, you make the show possible as well. And by sharing it with your friends and telling people about the show, you help other people discover it. The audience has been growing and growing. And for that, we're really gratified. So thank you all very much. And um, we will come back to you next week with yet another futurist because that's our mission. We're going to interview them all someday. (laughs) And so I guess until then, we will see you. Here we go, everybody. See you in In the the future. 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 (laughs) We are never going to get the timing right on that. It works. I tried. It's fun. All right. See you, everyone. All right. (laughs) Well, that's it for the futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. 
And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.